Well, today, you might not know, but Congress made today National Big Word Sermon Day. Yeah, so you're going to need to open up to dictionary.com for a sermon this morning. I think you'll be okay. We are going through a sermon series, so this is week three, on a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And the name Hebrews likely, likely comes from the recipients of the book, who probably, we don't know for sure, but probably were Christians from Jewish ancestry. So they were Hebrew Christians. And we typically call Hebrews a letter or an epistle, but when you look at it as a whole, it really has the flavor more of a sermon, a sermon of exhortation. And one word that describes this sermon called Hebrews is the word better. Better. Specifically, Jesus is better. Better than angels, we saw last week, this week a little bit, better than Moses, better than the promised land of rest and the priesthood of Israel, better than the covenant given to Israel, and it goes on and on in this book. And therefore, the new covenant, the new testament is better than the old covenant, the old testament. In our passage today in chapter 2, you may open up there now if you have one of these scripture journals. If not, feel free to get up. I think there's some on the tables back there. Uh, You can grab one. They're free. I'd like you to have one for our series. But this passage today does not use the word better, but you'll see that the implications are still there. And I'm excited about this passage because we'll be exposed to some beautiful and life-changing truths. And the deeper we grasp what is written here, the deeper and richer our Christian life will be. So let's read. We're going to, our focus today will be beginning with verse 5, but we're actually going to start chapter 2, verse 1 to get the context here. Ideally, we'd read all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 together, but we're just going to start with chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord And it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Verse 5, for he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about, but someone somewhere has testified, and here's quoting from Psalm 8, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet See everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. 
crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. And again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Let's begin walking through this. Verse 5, he says, the world has not been subjected to angels, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. But first, in verse 7, he says that he, it says that he was made lower than the angels for a short time. What that means is, for a short time, a few years, about 33 years, Jesus Christ became a man with a mortal body like ours in a position that was lower in stature than angels, but just for those few years. And our first big word this morning is the word incarnation. I like this word. It means really that it's, it's very simple in its meaning, but it's powerful in its, in its impact. It just means the divine took on the human, the glorious became the inglorious. The immortal took on mortality. And Jesus, as deity, took on human nature. Not merely the divine residing for a short time in a human body, but actually taking on human nature, though not relinquishing His divinity. So we have this blend, this merging of the divine and the human. And we hold them both in the same hand. And it really is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. It's like the word Trinity that Pastor Matt talked about last week. We have a hard time explaining it. There's no human analogy. There's no metaphor that really satisfies to be able to explain such a mystery. But the incarnation is a, is a core doctrine of Christianity, and it's actually a theme that undergirds this entire book called Hebrews. So the incarnation is more than just a nice piece of knowledge to store somewhere in the back of our brain. We should marvel at this mystery 
of the glorious God, and if, and if we don't see, like in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 particularly, if we don't know the glory of Christ, then the incarnation just doesn't really seem like a big deal. But when we realize who he is, then this, this truth of him taking on humanity is, is mind-blowing. The, he, the sun, chapter 1 describes the sun as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He's the creator and the sustainer of heaven and earth just with his word. That's what brings out the marvel of this truth. The incarnation, without the incarnation, we have no real human blood to sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And without him, as a, as a mortal man for a time, he could not become the mediator, the high priest we'll talk about later that's talked about throughout this book. Without all that, Christianity is just really, it's just a made-up story that may make us feel good for a little while, but offers nothing beyond this life. So now back to verse 5. It says, God did not subject the world to angels. What does that mean? It just means the angels are not in charge of this world. Apparently, the, the readers of this book were worshiping angels. They had too high a view of angels, too low a view of God. Rather, the Son of Man, verse 6, is in charge of this world. All things have been subject, subjected to Him. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He said to us in His last words on earth in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth is His. And Hebrews says the same thing here in verse 7 and 8. God the Father placed all things under the rulership of the Son. He is Lord. He is King. And that brings up our second big word of the morning, and that is coronation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, was coronated as King. He was crowned the King, the King of Kings. And verse 8 says, it's really an important word here, it says, we do not yet see everything subjected to Him. That's just stating the obvious. This world is going crazy, and it doesn't seem like anything is subjected to God. The world is running wild. Few are making Him Lord in their hearts. And some have called this the now, but not yet. He is king now, and yet the kingdom has not come in its finality, in its consummation. There is still defiance against the king in this world, but he's coming soon. Still, even now, the entire world and even the spirit world is subject to him. He is Lord. Everything and everyone except God the Father is under his authority. And most importantly, we need to know and believe that Jesus Christ is my king. And he is your king. He is your Lord, your boss, my ruler. Whatever he says... I must listen to. <clears throat> Whatever he tells me, I must obey. It says, he has been crowned with glory and honor and everything is subjected to him. 
That's why Hebrews keeps telling us that Jesus is better. The incarnation and the coronation establish His supremacy and His glory. Now verse 9, an intriguing short little statement. It says that He tasted death for everyone. He tasted death for everyone. If you're familiar even slightly with Christianity, you've heard much made of Jesus' death. We talk about it every week. We sing about it all the time. You might even wonder, what is the big deal about death? I mean, everyone dies. Isn't it obvious? It's a fair question. And at least two things make Jesus' death much different than ours. It was a literal death an actual death like ours will be someday. But there are differences. One is the obvious thing is the incarnation made it different. That the eternal Son of God became a man in a mortal, broken, temporal body. It's just mind-blowing. A body that could and did die. And second, He came and died for a reason. Now for us mere mortals, our deaths are for a reason. And that reason is for our own sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages, what we've earned for our sin, is death. Certainly physical death, but our sin has also earned a deeper sort of death, a separation from God, an eternal, you might say a spiritual death that separates us from our Creator from real life. This world is not the ultimate life. There's another world coming, and sin has separated us. Jesus' death, though it was similar in one way because He literally died, the purpose of His death was very different. It was not for His own sins, but for yours and for mine. He tasted death for everyone. That is the good news of the New Testament. So the next big word for the morning is substitution. He substituted Himself for you and for me. Last fall, I think it would have been in November, in the book of Exodus, as we went through a sermon series, we talked about all this. Though we all deserve judgment for our sins, God, in His mercy, has provided a way out if we'll trust in Him. And it's founded upon some words from Moses that really explains even the gospel message today. Leviticus chapter 17. The Lord says, For the life of a creature is in the blood. So like, let's say, a lamb or a bull or a goat. And I have appointed it to you, this is to Israel, to make atonement on the altar for your lives. Since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. You may want to memorize this verse because it explains the gospel of the New Testament. God has mercifully provided a substitute for us, someone else's blood, someone else's life for yours. Not, a, not an animal like a lamb or a bull that Israel had. Rather, He's provided His Son, the Lamb of God, who tasted death for everyone. That is why Jesus is better. And we're beginning to see why the incarnation is such a critical doctrine. And we'll see this in almost every chapter in this book in the weeks to come. 
Now in verse 10, the author says something that may confuse us if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you know other scriptures. It says, God made the pioneer or the author or the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Wait, what? What, what, do you, what is he saying? Is he saying that Jesus was sinful and had to be made perfect? He had to be somehow made holy? That he was a sinner? It's a fair question, but the author is not confused. In chapter 4, he's going to tell us that he was without sin. What he's addressing here instead is Jesus' role as Savior. The word perfect also means complete. For Jesus to bring his role as Savior to completion or to its fullness or to its perfection, he needed to suffer. He couldn't be the Savior that we wanted without suffering in two ways. First is he experienced the suffering and the pain of temptation. Jesus, in his humanity, actually endured real temptations. He did not sin. He did not succumb to them. But he faced the agony that temptations bring. And if you know Jesus, you know this agony. You know the challenge. You know the, the, the pain that there is. The, the, how strong temptations in our lives can be. The temptation to do what's wrong. That can be so alluring, and in a way, it's torture to resist. It's just easier, even more pleasurable, simply to give in to the temptation. At least for the moment. So when the Holy Son of God experienced temptation, like in Matthew 4, and certainly in other days, his entire 33 years of life, would have been constant temptation... Though he never succumbed. And so now we'll see, not only in verse 18, but later on in chapter 4, he can sympathize with us. He knows the painful reality of fighting day after day after day. So he suffered by experiencing temptation in his human body. But two, and more importantly, he suffered most obviously by his death. Now, his death on the cross was certainly physical agony. Agony probably higher than any of us can, can ever imagine. But even worse surely would have been the spiritual suffering, being forsaken, hated by his enemies, forsaken by his friends, and even worse, forsaken by his own father. Which is why he cried in his dying words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That lonely cry, the loneliest cry that anyone has ever uttered in history, was when the father turned his face away from his own son and laid your sins and my sins on his back and brought his own wrath on his beloved son. In all this suffering, God the Father made the Son the perfect, the complete Savior. 
There is no other way for us to be rescued from the penalty of sin. The next big words here are sanctification and adoption. Verse 11 and through 13. To sanctify means to be made holy, to be consecrated, set apart for the noble, glorious purposes of God. So in verse 11, it says the one who sanctifies, that is the one who sanctifies us, the one who purifies us and makes us holy is Jesus. And he, sancti- he is sanctified. He's the one who sanctifies. He already is sanctified, but he sanctifies us. Both he and we now have one Father. We now can call, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've believed in Him, you've said, yes, He is better. He is the perfect, the complete Savior. He is God incarnate. He's come to die for me. He rose from the dead for me. If you believe that, you can now call God your Father. Your Father. The gospel of Christ is better than the covenant given to Israel Through Moses, because we are adopted by God as his children. That makes us God's sons and daughters. And that makes us Jesus' brothers and sisters. You'll see this language all over the New Testament. It's hard to imagine a more intimate relationship with almighty, creator, holy, magnificent, glorious God. Through the better work of His Son in His death, we now become family members of God. And anytime we ever wonder or question what our value is or if our lives matter or, or if we feel all alone or insignificant, remember this, God has adopted you through the work of His Son. And look at verse 11. Jesus is not ashamed to call you His brother and His sister. The opposite of shame is honored. So we could say on the positive way, Jesus is honored to call you his brother and his sister. The glorious king who rules over heaven and earth, to whom all things are subjected, the creator, the sustainer of all things through his powerful word, the mighty God, God incarnate, glories, that you now are his brother and his sister. Uh, It's just mind-blowing when we realize the glory of God. Verse 14 and 15, the next two words here are destruction and freedom. The work of Christ when he died and rose from the dead destroyed the devil's power over death. The author did not mean here that Satan ceased to exist or to be active, 
The word destroy indicates that he no longer has the power over death, particularly towards those whom Christ redeems. And then freedom is the word for us who believe in the Son who rose from the dead. When we believe in Christ, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes ours. And even though we will still die physically, we will never die spiritually, eternally. We will never have the kind of death of a separation from God. And death no longer has the final word for those who are in Christ. It's called eternal life for a reason. It's real life in the presence of the glorious God forever and ever and ever and ever, always and ever, beauty and wonder and peace and joy and holiness. That's life. And I recognize we can still worry about dying. I certainly have at times. But such a fear, we're told here, is enslaving and it is needless for us in Christ. Life through the Son is ours. The prison doors of death are now open. And our duty is to walk out of the cell and enjoy the freedom that the gospel brings to us. Verse 17 is a good summary of our passage today. Jesus was made like his brothers and sisters in every way. That is, he was made like us, fully human, the incarnation, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest to make atonement for our sins. Verse 17 here introduces us for the first time in Hebrews, but certainly not the last time, to the title high priest. We are going to see it in every single chapter through chapter 10. It's a major theme in this book, and we'll get into this a lot more in the coming weeks, but let me simply say that a high priest is a mediator. He is a go-between, between holy God and sinful man. And we cannot enter the presence of God. We cannot access God without a holy mediator. We have to have someone to represent us and speak to God on our behalf. And the Son of God, Jesus, is that mediator. A merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful, compassionate, tender-hearted. Faithful, he's trustworthy. And now he speaks to God the Father on our behalf as he offers his own blood as a substitute. And now with that mediatorship, if that's a word, I just made it a word if it's not, with that comes the best word, the best big word of all, and that's propitiation. Now it's not in this version, Christian standard, it says make atonement, that works, but I like the word, some translations use the word propitiation. It's just a cool word that we never use anywhere else in the English language. But it's such a beautiful word. To make atonement or to propitiate means to appease or to pacify someone's anger. And God is angry, even wrathful towards sin. And he is poised to bring judgment down 
on sin. But God, he's not looking for appeasement from us. We don't do the work of pacifying him, as you'll find in some pagan religions where they have to pacify the demons from their anger. God himself here has taken action. Out of his love, his great love, his rich mercy, he has sent his own son to pacify his own anger. This is where justice and the wrath of God meets the mercy and tenderheartedness of God. God does it himself. The son's death appeased the father's wrath. So that's why we go through the son. That's why we have to believe in the son. To find forgiveness, to find peace with God. And it's possible only because of the love of God and the incarnation of the Son who died in our place as the Lamb of God, who was appointed high priest, the mediator to go directly into the access of the Holy God on your behalf. That same Son who was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven to be our eternal, never-ending mediator. We'll see in a few weeks in chapter 7. I love this verse. It says, therefore, he is able to save completely, not part way, not a little bit, but to save completely, radically, thoroughly those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives. It implies he rose from the dead. He's in heaven now. And that's why throughout this sermon called Hebrews, the preacher keeps saying, hold on to Jesus. Why would you turn to anyone or anything else? Don't neglect him. Don't ignore him. He is your hope and your only hope. There's a story in the Gospels that I love in John chapter 6. Jesus had said some hard things to all the crowd. They were listening to him teach. He'd said some hard things about being the bread of life. And, and some people simply didn't like it. They decided, this is too hard. I don't like this. So they just left. They quit listening to Jesus. So Jesus sees this as a teachable moment. So he turns to his 12, the 12 disciples. And he said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And I love what Simon Peter answered. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter knows there's, there's nowhere else to go. You have the answers for life. Where else? Why, why would I possibly turn to someone or something else. I like Peter's words that transitions us into where do we go from here? We read this chapter, there's not one command in this, in this section. There's not one command in what we just read. And that's okay because there's a glorious foundational truth but we have to answer the question, what now? What do we do with this? The Lord's scriptures are never intended merely to entertain. 
Though certainly there are fascinating and entertaining passages. His word is never intended to merely give us facts like a history book, though it is historical from cover to cover. God intends His words in this book to change our lives from the inside out, to soften our hearts, to give clear direction when we're confused, to save our souls when we're facing the wrath of God, to show us how to live. And so I love Peter's words there in John 6, such a simple faith, so rich, just, Lord, where else can we go? You have words that give me life. Peter had been with Jesus, observing miracles, hearing authoritative teaching, seeing genuine love. And his conclusion is that no one else offers real life like Jesus. No one backs up what he says like he does. So let let, let me step back just for a moment and let's think about chapters 1 and 2. If you've been with us these uh, these last three Sundays, what do we know about Jesus? He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint, the, the perfect representation of the Father. He is creator of heaven and earth. He's the sustainer of all things that we see by his powerful word. He's the purifier of sins. He is God incarnate. He's the coronated king. He's the substitution for the death that we deserved. He's the high priest, our mediator, to defend us before a holy God in heaven. And he even calls us his brothers and his sisters, and he's honored to do so. And like Peter, we can conclude, we must conclude, there is nowhere else to go. Jesus has the words of life. And so Hebrews speaks to us in many ways if we begin to try to apply this to our lives. If any of us are sitting here or watching online, if we are stubbornly defying Jesus in our hearts, maybe we're faking it on the outside, but inside we know we're just defying Jesus and we really want nothing to do with him. Hebrews warns us of the coming judgment. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth and you will answer to him. Reject him at your peril. To those of us, and I assume it's the vast majority in this room, if we have believed in Jesus, but find ourselves overcome at times, maybe too often, overcome with worry about our future, the future of this country, the future of our health, the future of our finances or our job status or our exams that we have to take in classes or our children's spiritual well-being. Instead of being overcome with worry, we have to remember that all things in heaven and on earth are subjected to Him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything and everyone will bow to Him someday. Everyone will declare him king of kings and we can calm our hearts because the king is here and you know him. The psalmist said it so well in Psalm 46 verse 10. He said, be still, calm your hearts, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Stop 
your worrying and your striving in life. You have a faithful and merciful high priest, the King of Kings, whose name is Jesus. We, others of us, we're walking with Jesus, yet we find ourselves weary at times, weary in body, weary even in our souls. And we wonder if we have strength to go on. And Jesus, out of great kindness, just out of his tender mercy, he invites us to come to him. Look at, look at his beautiful words here in Matthew 11 that bring tears to my eyes. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am mean and cruel. No, I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What an invitation to find rest and strength in the incarnate God who has endured much temptation, has endured a weary body and a weary soul more than you know, he invites you to come to him and find strength. Some of us may wonder if we were in Christ, we know him, we've been walking with him, but we wonder, do I have any value? Is my life just totally worthless? Is there any point in my life? We have to remember the gospel in this chapter that God Almighty has adopted you. Jesus himself is not ashamed to sing of you in the congregation, to join you. If he was here physically, he would join us in our songs. You're a member of the family of God by the great love and the rich mercy of Christ. Believe that. Or tomorrow, if we find temptation strong and we simply want to give in, it's just too hard to keep fighting. This chapter says, hold on. Yield to the coronated king. He's your Lord. We can be, be like a, think of a five-year-old. Think, picture a five-year-old tomorrow morning. His mom just asked him to do something simple and he's just defiant. He doesn't want to do it. And you just look at him and you say, dude, dude, your mom loves you. Just yield. You're not going to win here. You're five. You don't know anything. Yield to your mother. So it is with us. Just when the temptations come, just yield to Christ, not to the temptation. He simply wants to bring us good. Hebrews exalts Jesus Christ and it calls us to pay attention to him, to remember his love, his power, his authority, to remember the sin-cleansing work of his death and to glory in the high priest who is seated in heaven defending you and loving you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a, what a glorious plan of salvation you have given through your Son. Your mercy 
patience, kindness compelled you to give so much, to give your own beloved eternal son in order to identify with us, to propitiate our sins, to adopt us, to honor us. And like Peter, we say this morning, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Would you help us to absorb these words deep in our soul this morning? Would you change us from the inside out? Would you transform our thinking, our behaviors, and give us clearer minds to believe what you have done and to love you with all our hearts? In the name of the Son of God, we pray. Amen.